Um, but early on in my career, I did have a big burnout. I ended up not coming into work one day. I was rushing to work. I ended up crashing my car. I don't think that they really knew how much I was doing because, you know, they, they wouldn't really know. I ended up just doing everything and anything, and I didn't really know what I was doing. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> this is Finding Power. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Amanda Slavin, whose nonstop lifestyle ultimately led her to a life-altering moment in the back of a taxi cab in India. This realization cascaded into a transformed perspective on health and coming to terms with the idea that it's maybe okay to slow down for a bit. Throughout her career, Amanda works side by side with the world's most brilliant and diverse minds and has given numerous TED Talks, navigated a life-changing diagnosis, and ultimately discovered the importance of taking time for herself. Now, Amanda is the founder of Catalyst Creative, a space for creatives to connect. Her commitment to her goals and to others is extraordinary, but throughout her life, we'll see that even this superpower has its flaws. With each extreme push for achievement, whether in the naive pursuit of popularity or taking on an excessive amount of responsibility, Amanda finds herself at a breaking point. But with each painful moment that she experiences, she also unearths insight, balance, and fulfillment. We'll get into all this in a bit, but to get a better understanding of Amanda, we have to bring things way back to a spunky, outgoing girl in a tiny town of 6,000 people. So yeah, I grew up in a 6,000 person town uh, and I always valued relationships and that's just been a key part of my life. My mom used to tell me that when I was three years old, I, um, I would line up all the stuffed animals on the stairs every single day and bring out my piano and sing party for friends. I sang like, this is a party for friends. This is a party for friends. Like every single day because I was this social creature and I always wanted to create connections even between my stuffed animals. Being a part of a small town and knowing everything about everyone and everyone knowing everything about you, I really put my nose in a lot of people's business. My mom called me a walking yearbook. I, I knew every single person. And I always, you know, made sure to really get to know, you know, the people and the, their stories because I just really cared. And yeah, it definitely, you know, it got me in trouble because I was obsessed with. Maybe it was being popular. Why was popularity something you were so aware of? When you're good at relationships, the way that you measure that success is popularity at a young age. This popularity that Amanda attained wasn't based in status. It was based in authentic relationships. It was based in connection. I'll let psychologist Mitch Prinstein explain. Almost everybody, no matter how many years it's been since you've graduated high school, can remember the names of the most popular kids in their grade. 
And that's because there are actually two very different types of popularity. These categories are likability and status. Status is bad for us. Status is based on how much everybody knows who we are. Now, most adolescents who are very high in status are actually very disliked by their peers. Status is probably what most people think of first when they hear the word popularity. But Amanda's popularity wasn't built on status. It was built on likability. Likeability is based on how much we make others feel happy, valued, and included. And it's good for us. Preston explains in his book that the more popularity stems from status rather than likability, the more shallow a person's connections become. Amanda was focused on meaningful relationships, and she wanted to expand those relationships beyond herself. She wanted to create meaningful relationships within the education system. This was an idea she took with her to university. I didn't understand why I couldn't talk all the time. I, I didn't like that I had to sit there and raise my hand and wait to be called on. I wanted to have conversations and discussions in the same way that I was always talking with people and finding out their stories. So I was very interested in changing the way that we do learn, no matter what. That's just like something that's been very, very important to me because I was so bored. Going to college, what were you thinking about pursuing? There's a very, very prestigious education program as a part of UConn and 30 students get into the program. There's about 15,000 students at UConn. So the second semester of sophomore year, I had to study abroad. The first semester came back and entered into the program. And once you're in the program, your entire life is now focused on very, very specifically education. Uh, and so I think it was starting yeah, starting when I was 21 years old or no, 20 years old. I was in different classrooms. I was in high schools. I was in middle schools. I was in some of the lowest funded programs in the, in the country. Um, and I was also in some of the most well-funded education systems in the country. I was... Um, interning at a school that again was one of the more underserved communities there was some prompt around like if you won the lottery what would you do with the money one of the kids said that he would buy his brother sneakers and you know that gets to me because i think that we always blame children we say that these kids are not wanting to learn or they're distracted and i just feel like that's such a disservice to these children all kids actually intuitively and intrinsically want to learn, but we create the barriers in our own mind on why they can't. And it's on us as adults to give them the benefit of the doubt and do what it takes for them to learn in any environment. If we can always see and look at them from that perspective, then we're going to give them their best chance to do so. I heard some emotion in your voice when you were describing those kids. Why do you care so much? I wish that every single person in our country had to intern at a school that was not properly funded. Unless you are in these classrooms and seeing these children and how much they want to learn and how much they want to grow and, and that they're not given a fair chance to do so, then you don't really understand what needs to be improved in our country. I think that we are segmented away from other people's realities. I believe that everyone has the ability to, to be great if they're given the chance to learn. Amanda's sense of commitment for these children came from a deep-seated purpose that we've seen threaded through her whole life. 
From singing to her stuffed animals to knowing the ins and outs of hundreds of people's lives, Amanda has gone to every length to make people feel seen and included. So when I look back on what she described as a hunt for popularity, the shallowness associated with this term seems so far away from the intentions behind Amanda's persona. Her social nature came from a desire to hear people's stories and look out for them. And you can see these same social skills applied to her role in the classroom. Amanda's teaching was a dialogue, a conversation where she was learning from her students as much as they were from her. As she said, the value she found in this internship came from its capacity to breach the areas that separate us from other people's realities. While Amanda took as much as she could from this experience, she began to question how accessible these connections would be if she continued her path towards teaching. I realized how much of teaching has nothing to do with children. It's a lot of planning and prepping. You know, I have a master's in curriculum instruction. It's a lot of being able to design lessons. It's being meticulous and doing a lot of research and analysis and then building out these these lesson plans for kids. People say, oh, teachers have the summers off. No, they do not have the summers off. They're spending those summers building curriculum and lessons for their kids. Uh, And so, you know, once I saw not only was it 60% planning and building, but it was also then, let's just say 15%, 20% dealing with parents, dealing with the school board, dealing with standardized tests. Um, It was so many systems that I had to be a part of, and I really don't like being a cog in in the wheel. So I realized that I would have to be doing a lot of what other people told me to do. And I was going to resent the kids because this was not about actually connecting with them. It was about doing what everyone else thought was right. An Atlantic reporter who interviewed some of the most accomplished teachers in the country found that the secret to quality teaching lies in prioritizing students over a set of concepts or a curriculum. Connecting with students on an individual level and teaching them lessons that apply to the real world provides the type of education that just can't be taught with exams. With the No Child Left Behind Act in 2001, some teachers claim that the focus on multiple choice test scores led to a drill and kill approach. This is where teachers would focus almost entirely on teaching standardized tests to improve scores and secure funding. It's impersonal and frankly, it's boring. So where the connection got lost in teaching, she found it in the hustle of event planning and entertainment. Yet even when it seemed like too much, Amanda kept wondering where each yes would take her. What are you doing at the same time while you're getting your master's degree to like pay for it? Going back to that same boyfriend from high school. So we stayed together in college and he said, you know, you should really think about promoting. I was like, I don't even know what promoting is. So he's like, oh, my friend has a friend. You you know, you should talk to him. And I had a lot, a lot of people that I knew. As I said, I was in a lot of different groups. And so I just started to throw events and I was bringing about 50 to 100 people every single weekend. It's crazy that like you have all these tendrils going in at the same time. Did you feel like you were like taking care of yourself just because I'm thinking of all the things you're doing and it just seems like prime for burnout. The one thing I will say is I really did not know where I was going with all of this. I kind of just said yes to a lot of different things. Yeah, I just kept saying yes and and wanted to see where that led me without really having any idea where that was going to lead me. And so where did it lead you? 2009 hit. 
that was a recession and people really weren't getting jobs in, in the teaching world because teachers weren't getting their pensions, so they weren't retiring. And I said, okay, I think I'm going to try to go into events. I ended up connecting with this group that had I had promoted for in a few different spaces. And they were looking for kind of this catch-all, you know, a marketing and events person. I didn't even know about negotiating. I just took their first offer uh, and I ended up working for this, this restaurant group. First and foremost, I had no idea how to advocate for myself, negotiate on my own behalf. I was super scarcity mindset because I was scared of getting fired. I, I felt like this was the only job that I could do. I, you know, I didn't really know again. I didn't have the confidence in work um, because I had a teaching background. So I was really, really scared that if I got fired, that would be that would be it. Um, but early on in my career, I did have a big burnout. I ended up not coming into work one day. I was rushing to work. I ended up crashing my car. I don't think that they really knew how much I was doing because, you know, they, they wouldn't really know. You know, I was I was hired as this events and marketing person and I ended up just doing everything and anything and I didn't really know what I was doing. So I sat down my boss, uh, this was probably six months into the job. And I said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I need mentorship. I need guidance. I need an intern at least to work with me because I don't want to mess up. And I care too much about your company to, to be making mistakes. And so that was like a big pivotal moment in my life with that company as well. I think my boss saw me differently in that moment. Uh, and he actually did. He gave me an intern, which then turned into an employee that worked for him for 10 years. And I ended up hiring a, a huge staff and mostly mostly women. I was the only woman at the time. Um, so yeah, I was doing well. I became a partner in that group. But like looking back, I would have mentored myself to do a lot of things differently very early on. Working 12-hour days every night for four years would cause most people to be worked out. But Amanda felt an immense pressure to succeed. And at the time, self-advocacy wasn't her strong suit. She wasn't alone in this. Many women in the workplace face hesitation when it comes to negotiating and self-advocating, largely because of gender stereotypes that create societal expectations that are rigid and inhibiting. Research has shown that people are more likely to perceive women who self-advocate as self-promoting and less likable than men. So for many women, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You can advocate for yourself, sure, but you might risk being perceived as unlikable. But Amanda went for it anyway and became someone who pulled other women up with her. She was exhausted, but she was successful. And this was only the beginning. This ex-boyfriend did a lot for me. He was like a big catalyst in my life. He introduced me to his pledge master, and he was the director of operations of this new thing called Summit Series. And they were doing this big conference on a cruise ship. And, you know, the guy said to me, you know, we just need you as a freelancer. It's one week. Just try it. I was like, okay. Again, it's like that kind of yes mentality. Like, yeah, I'll try it out. I went to produce this thing, and I was like, what is going? I didn't even know who Richard Branson was. Like Richard Branson spoke and I had never, I was like, I don't know who this guy is. I just like started to be educated around this whole new world. 
And this is like post-recession. New York is now ripe for entrepreneurship. That's what, that's what Summit Series did for me. It opened me up to a whole new world of social impact and entrepreneurship. This kind of laid the groundwork of, okay, I know what's possible. So what happens the following year? So when I was introduced to this world, it was mind-blowing to me. This is a new industry that is forming before my eyes. And so when I ended up the next year, they asked me to be a content producer. And at this time, I knew who Richard Branson was and I knew who everyone was. And I knew pretty much all the people at Summit. And it was just, it kind of felt like really comfortable for me. And as a part of that experience, one of the big summiters decided that he wanted to give a talk to the staff before anyone else got there. And it was Tony Shea. And he talked about the importance of corporate culture and what it meant to, you know, really kind of value your employees. And I went up to him after and I asked him, I'm like, what do you do when you're working with someone and you don't think they're the right fit? And he said, rather than trying to force someone into that culture, why not just allow for them to leave and put your time and energy into those who do align with the culture? And then later in that, in that experience, there was a few of us talking to him and he just invited us all to come to Vegas. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll come. That moment was the, one of the biggest catalyst moments for me in my entire life. And it took me to a lot of different places that I did not think possible. The yes drove Amanda into a world that combined her love for events and education into a brand new industry. She became surrounded by interesting people like English business magnate Richard Branson and CEO investor Gary Vaynerchuk. Post-recession, New York became the hotspot for the rise of entrepreneurship and doing work that leaves an impact. The average person spends 90,000 hours at work over the course of their life. So you definitely want at least some of those hours to be filled with purpose. Over 70% of people would define purposeful work as doing something for their community. And Amanda began to see Summit Series in a similar vein. She could both educate and entertain people. And once she met Tony Shea, CEO of the online company Zappos, the business world would lead her to even greater impact. Tony to me was just like an interesting guy. And I was just like, I'm going to, yeah, sure. I'll come to Vegas. Like, sounds cool. And so I got there. And then in the next, you know, day or so, there were all these things that were planned. I got a text message saying, come meet us for drinks at this bar. It's Tony. I went to the bar with a few people and Tony's like, I don't remember you. Tell me who you are and what you want to do with your life. Wow. That's a super direct (laughs) question. Yeah. Tony didn't talk much. And at the time he was really, really shy. And when he talked, he just was very direct. That's when I was like, really, you know, doing the pitch about inspiring experiences and creating, you know, using education as a way to change the way people, you know, think about the world and, but through marketing experiences and, you know, just, it was a whole kind of spiel. And the guy next to me said something like, oh, I know a little something about that. And I was like, what's your name? He's like, Chip. And I was like, are you Chip Conley? And he's like, yes. I'm like, you are like a role model for me. I've watched all your TED Talks. And that's when Tony looked at me, kind of like in his Tony way giggled. And he's like, let's have lunch tomorrow. 
he got up and kind of gave my friend and I a, a quick tour of what was going on, introduced us to a llama, which now I know is not weird for Tony. And I just realized I was like, we are so similar. And even though he's super shy, like he is so weird and so zany and cares so much about connection. He would throw all these big parties. He would throw raves in his like apartment in San Francisco. Um, and the next day we just ended up having lunch at this place called The Beat. I was like, we are so similar. I'm like, all I have to do is go to this lunch and be exactly myself. And so I went to that lunch and I'm just like talking a million miles a minute and eating my salad. He's just like sitting there with his Tony smirk, like, okay. And I'm just like, and I want to do experiences. And I did And he's just like, do it here. And I was like, no, where? I don't even know what you're talking about. Like I live in New York City. That was the beginning of uh, the next journey for me, if you will. What did it start turning into? And what were some of those early wins? So with Tony, I told him no. I was like, I don't know if I really want to move to Vegas. So I was really in that intersection of figuring out who I was. Yeah, I drank a lot because of nightlife. You know, I was out every single night, but I was like a social holic. I just couldn't. I couldn't be alone with myself. I, I was obsessed with just always being out and always being surrounded by people. And I felt really, really empty inside. And so I ended up taking a vacation. It was like literally seven days. And I went to India. It was the first time that I had not drank alcohol for more than one day. And probably four years, maybe more. And so I was really alone with my thoughts for like a good seven days. And I was trying to get into yoga. I was trying to stop drinking alcohol. But in India, I met a cab driver. I said to him, how do you do yoga? Like, do you do yoga? He's like, oh, of course. And I was like, okay, well, like, how do you do it? I can't get into it. He's like, it's all about the patience of breath. So he's like, let me just show you how to breathe. So he starts to breathe, you know, with his stomach out and stomach in. And he's like, what do you do? If you don't do yoga, he's like, do you go out? Do you like party? I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, you drink. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, yes, yes, yes. He's like, and you eat a lot of meat, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I eat a lot of chicken. He's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. He's like, this is what you do. You go back to America, no eating meat, no drinking alcohol, yoga every day. When you first get back, you do these breath exercises. I'll send you an email. And then after a week, you do yoga every single day. Then you come back and show me the results. And so I went home in my so loft. I went on my fire escape every single morning, did an hour of breathing, stopped drinking, stopped eating meat, started doing yoga every single day for six straight months while I was in nightlife. When I stopped drinking, first of all, I realized that I didn't actually want to be so social. I started being by myself a lot more, going to the park, writing, reading. I was just like, for the first time in my life, really enjoying myself. Amanda knew what she wanted. Her trip to India forced her to be alone with herself and reflect on what her future would look like. As someone who depended so much on social interactions, this wasn't easy to do. But studies show that finding a balance between being alone and being around others can enhance psychological development. Spending some time with yourself actually increases productivity, fosters better relationships, and boosts creativity. There's no wonder that Amanda came back knowing what she wanted. I, I had this realization where I was like, 
I need to work with Tony. Like this is going to be one of those things that I look back on and regret if I don't do it, if I don't just take the risk. And I said, I, you know, I kind of in a notebook, I wrote down, it's like going to be a summer camp for adults. I'm going to host these experiences in Vegas. I wrote down all the people I was going to invite. It was about 30 people. They're going to be the first people to go to this event thing that I was going to do. And it was going to be called Catalyst Week. And when I wrote in that journal, when I was very, very clear minded, those 30 people that were going to come to that first event, Tony wanted it to be a full week. He wanted it to be seven days. These were like top people from all over the world. So I sent out an email to these 30 people. I said, come to this week. This is what's happening. Tony's doing it. And every single person said yes. They came for seven days. What happened was they started posting on social media. They started sharing it. It was real and it was genuine. It was, it was like a summer camp for adults. It ended up blowing up. And, and after that week, all these people started reaching out to me saying, how do I come to Cattles Week? How do I come to Cattles Week? And I was like, okay. After this first event, I remember I sat down with Tony and like six other people. And I was like, this is a thing. It cannot be seven days. It has to be three days. I need to bring on a staff member. You need to invest more money in this. I need to create a proper budget for this. We're going to start doing this every month because people are freaking out and want to come. I started the company with Robert and Tony August of 2012, and this was November of 2012. Just four months after Amanda started her partnership with Tony and Robert, Catalyst Week was already blowing up. But at this point, Amanda was probably getting used to sudden dramatic changes. After one conversation with the cab driver, Amanda was standing on a rusty fire escape, blocking out the blaring city noise and focusing on her breath. Practicing yoga, as Amanda was doing, unites your body and mind. It can give you clarity and a sense of wholeness and ultimately acts as a catalyst for positive change. This new perspective often leads people to surround themselves with things that nurture their whole being and discard the worthless clutter in their lives. That's exactly what Amanda did. So instead of sharing her story through hashtags and filtered selfies, Amanda owned her vulnerability by using her intimate journey as inspiration for an exclusive group event. The first event was life-changing. Amanda immediately began planning for future iterations and found herself relying on her background in education. The most important and crucial thing were those first 30 people. And I was so selective and specific with those individuals. And then I allowed for them to create the experience. You know, there was this one experience, this guy, Alex Ablin, who's a friend of mine, he created this vulnerability session where we got to ask the community of people that were there, um, you know, for something that we needed. And that was when our friend Dan said, I feel like a robot. I don't feel like I have a heart. He had just been going through a divorce. You were all so inspiring me to have a heart and I don't know where to begin and I need help. And so that week was just unbelievable, not to mention, yes, for the 30 people that were there, but for the hundreds and hundreds of people that attended those talks, that ended up shaping a whole new way of thinking around these quote unquote conferences. It was rippling out to hundreds, which then more hundreds, hundreds, thousands of people because of the way that these individuals were coming together serendipitously. That's what snowballed into Catalyst Creative without us even really meaning to. We just started an, an event called Catalyst Week, which was an experiment and saw where it took us. This experiment tapped into our primal needs to connect and to be seen. 
But psychologists have found that societal expectations and social conditioning often force us to hide behind facades and compartmentalize our thoughts and feelings. As a self-described social chameleon, I'd imagine that Amanda was familiar with social facades and compartmentalizing. At events for Catalyst Creative, Amanda empowered participants to drop their masks and reconnect with all aspects of themselves. They could let go of who they thought they were and embrace the person at their core. But Amanda was so focused on serving others that she couldn't slow down to find herself. Soon, she'd experienced something that forced her to sit and think. Because of these Catalyst Weeks, it became this massive business engine where people would attend the experiences and kind of fall in love with everything we were doing and then just say, like, how can you do this for us? So I think we grew like 77% the first year. I decided to move to Vegas after about two years. And when I moved there, I needed something from Vegas, which was business. And Vegas wasn't really ready yet. You know, they were still starting as a community and, and still building. Um, and I started to, I think, feel a lot of anxiety and stress around the business and around keeping it, you know, keeping it going. I did ayahuasca. And in that experience, I was told to slow down and to receive. It was an amazing experience and it was a very individual journey. And the day after I left like sunglasses at a restaurant, I was running there, rushing as always. And I ended up uh, breaking my foot. And so for the next three months, I had to receive and slow down. And then I started losing all this weight and it was a very weird experience. And then a friend of mine, she said to me, you need to go to a doctor. Like you look sick. So I was like, okay. So I just did a routine blood test with a doctor in Vegas and she said, you are fine, but you have diabetes. And so I go to this doctor and he puts me in touch with another doctor. And I go to this doctor and she says, you have type one diabetes. You need to be on insulin immediately. Your blood sugar is at extremely high levels that are very dangerous. This can cause long-term damage if you don't get on insulin today. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it at all. I, I thought that I could beat it. I was like, this isn't real. This is some fluke. You know, I'm going to prove to everyone that I could do the impossible like I always do. But I still trusted that I needed to take insulin. I cried hysterically the first time I had to prick my finger because I was like, how am I supposed to do this every day? Like, this is just, it was so emotional. And I was like, there's no way I can do this. So I ended up getting pregnant. And when you're pregnant, your blood sugar goes higher. And so I knew immediately that my blood sugar was higher. And I had a miscarriage, which terrified me beyond belief and devastated me to my core, which uh, was probably the hardest moment of my whole life, one of the hardest moments of my life. But I got pregnant again, thankfully, shortly after. And that experience of having to keep my blood sugar under such control to protect the baby, being constantly told that if it goes too low, I could hurt, hurt the baby. If it goes too high, I could hurt the baby. That makes me emotional. That was just really a reminder that I was sick. I have a, you know, I have a disease that I have to manage and maintain and that I wasn't like everyone else. So that year was just a, a real reminder that I my life was going to be different for, for a very long time. I've kind of always put myself last in a lot of ways, and now I have no way of putting myself last. 
with diabetes, I have to put myself first or my energy levels go down or I can put myself in a lot of trouble. And so I will always kind of throw myself fervently into everything that I'm doing. And it's always the lesson for me is to slow down, to ask myself what I need and to make sure that I'm prioritizing my own health and well-being. That's been the lesson I think all along. When our lives are touched by tragedy and heartbreak, the best we can hope for is to adapt and learn from the experience. She gave herself space to grieve and took things one breath at a time. After a tense nine months, Amanda gave birth to her son, Logan, and began a new chapter in her life. Where is everything now? Catalyst Creative, your life, your book, like where has all of this led up to? This year has been so challenging for so many people. I had Logan in the Upper West Side two months before COVID. I ended up leaving New York because of my type 1 diabetes and because of, of Logan. And we ended up literally not having a house for a year, just traveling for a year. So I came back with a very small baby and had to help bring in significant business to continue the company's growth. I thank God I was meditating every day in order to keep myself sane. And in my meditation, I had this idea of this guy that came to one of our really early Catalyst Weeks and who had been a big supporter of ours for years. I had this vision that he was going to invest in the company. So he reached out to me randomly and was like, how are you doing? And with COVID, I was like, it's pretty crazy. But I had this weird meditation that you were supposed to invest in our company. And he's like, oh, well, that's funny because I've been talking about that actually. And so we started having these conversations about, you know, him investing. And it was literally now April, COVID, baby, book, no house. And uh, I ended up raising money from this amazing partner for Catalyst, transitioned out as CEO to become executive chairperson. It's amazing because I found this email that Tony, Tony actually introduced me to Zach, who's the investor, uh, almost nine years ago. I just realized how much Tony set me up for success. You know, Tony, Tony writes a lot of forewords to a lot of books. He, uh, he kind of has someone that a lot of the times people do this who are busy, right? They tell you to write it and then they, they just put their name on it. But with my book, I said, Tony, I'm not doing that. I want you to write a personal note. And um, he wrote this, this note about how when he read the book, he realized how similar we were which was very similar to the way I felt about reading his book. So he set me up for this next evolution of my business with this new investor. And, uh, and I, I really got to see him two weeks before he passed. So it's, it's been a year of life and death. And um, I think it's been that for everyone, but it was definitely a full circle year for me. Seems like it's just been like in terms of, what you've had to endure these last couple of years, it seems like a lot. Looking forward to like the future and like looking at the memory of all these people that have helped you and the potential of like your new baby and the potential of, of this new positioning for Catalyst, what are you most excited for and, and, and what are you looking forward to? We realized that we had to go back to our core this year and that was really Robert's as the new CEO, you know, he was able to have clarity and um, and the vision to say, like, we need to go back to what we're good at and and what we're passionate about, which is building community. And so I feel that that's very closely aligned with Tony's legacy and that this is what he would want us to do. And we're focusing on two things. You know, one of the things we're focusing on is 
we're building out a whole university model. So it's it's teaching people how to create engaging uh, businesses, you know, from the ground up and really care about your customer in this meaningful way. And so we are creating, it's called Catalyst U, and we're building this this whole entire university out, kind of taking a lot of those people that came to Catalyst Week as well and, and training them and certifying them, making them teachers and amplifying and spreading that that message even further. And then the other thing we're doing is we're bringing back Catalyst Week. We're designing Catalyst Weeks all over the world and um, the country. Now we're going to be focusing on the things that we love most and that we're that are core to our DNA, which is designing experiences and also teaching others to do the same, to, to inspire and educate. To wrap up, what advice would you give yourself in college or high school, like when you're trying to figure out what do I want to do? How do I navigate the world? Like what, what advice would you give that younger person? I would just tell her to do exactly what she did, taking chances, taking risks, saying yes, but to also not be so afraid to say no. I was given advice once that the quality of your yeses are are defined by the quality of your noes. And if you never say no, then your yes really doesn't mean anything. And I think that if I had said no a bit more, I, I might be in a different position health-wise. Um, I think I, I threw myself again so much and I put myself last so often but I, I wouldn't change anything in terms of the trajectory and the decisions for my career because it brought me to where I am today. And, and I'm so grateful for that. I think I would just say no, not necessarily to the opportunities and to the experiences, you know, say yes to the things that matter and say no to the things that don't. <laughs> As a child, Amanda was called a machine because of her encyclopedic knowledge of everyone in her town. But Amanda's curiosity and thirst for knowledge are deeply human. Her childhood fixation matured into an intense need to inspire and engage with others. Amanda went from throwing concerts for all her stuffed animals to organizing week-long events for both visionary community leaders and A-list executives. But in order to truly create and collaborate with others, you need to figure out yourself. Nine years ago, Amanda was at a crossroads and set off on a journey of self-discovery. Her soul searching gave her the tools to thrive despite heartbreak and personal tragedy. She created a unique and accessible educational platform with Catalyst Creative and wrote a best-selling book, The Seventh Level, which explains her proprietary engagement framework. I think we can all agree that this has been a long year of social isolation. So now seems like the perfect time to learn about meaningful engagement with those around us. So let's put down our phones, take a few deep breaths and go connect with somebody. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez. Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callan Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. 
Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.